Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Guillermo del Toro is the director of whom we watched all of his films. Levi, 30 seconds or less, give me your broad thoughts on director Guillermo del Toro. I've always appreciated Guillermo del Toro ever since I realized that he was a director. But mm-hmm. I, Pan's Labyrinth was really the first time that I recognized who he was and what he was about. And it was so much fun getting to go through and watch all of his movies in order and to see the, the distinctions that he makes in the type of movies that he's making. Yeah. And I just, I have a broad appreciation now and and looking forward to, you know, we laughed a little bit about the fact that he's in and out of projects. Mm Mm-hmm. But even that roller coaster, I'm going to be excited anytime his name shows up on something. I would have killed to see what his Hobbit was like. Yeah, well, apparently a lot of his Hobbits stayed in there, um, and but I didn't see a whole ton of it. I mean, the thing about Guillermo del Toro is he's very stylistic. And he's stylistic in a way that you don't necessarily get from a Quentin Tarantino or an Edgar Wright, in that you could see a drawing and be like, oh yeah, that's Guillermo del Toro influenced um he's got that artistic style that a lot most directors don't have i think the only one that the other one that really comes to mind is tim burton where it's like oh yeah that's a tim burton-esque visual thing um i mean Zack snyder's got a little bit of it but that's mostly with like filters and green screen like there's (laughs) there's an artistic uh vision that gets expressed through guillermo del toro's movies and i think that i've gotten a broader appreciation of kind of what he's able to do as a director going through all these movies. It's also very interesting to me, though, how separated his movies are. And unlike Tarantino, where we were able to easily break out the three phases to his career, you know, the L.A. crime story phase, the grindhouse phase, the historical fiction phase, it's very cut and dry between those three. Guillermo del Toro really bounces around. (laughs) It's like he's got his personal passion projects, his uh, Spanish Civil War movies, and then he's got his comic book movies, and then he's got his studio films, and uh, and they all kind of pile on top of each other. So it's really interesting to me. It's going to be very interesting to me to see where he goes next as a director because I feel like we might be entering a brand new phase in his career post-Crimson Peak uh, just because I feel like Crimson Peak was kind of a turning point for him. It was really where all of his other films came together and had this nexus of commercial uh you know great effects personal story big budget like there was just a great kind of stacking and it was really this culmination of his first eight films so that's why uh, i think crimson peak was so interesting to me and i think that that's why i'm so excited to see what he does next yeah you mentioned tim burton who visually i always see previews and Uh, definitely with some of his earlier stuff Mm -hmm. it's intriguing and at this point i have very little interest when i see tim burton's name tacked onto something yeah guillermo del toro doesn't take himself so seriously right and it's been neat to see the transition not the train the amalgamation like you said of his stuff mixes together you get chronos which 
was really this great little project where he gets his start. And then, you know, you look at some of the big budget stuff that went bad, Blade 2 and Mimic, and how he kind of, when he gets his own reins, when he kind of gets into his own universes or universes that he truly loves like the Hellboys mm-hmm. or the stuff he creates like Pacific Rim he he you're right he's moves back and forth but he's never taking himself too seriously even with i think Pan's Labyrinth and this might be some of it is just from seeing his interviews he's serious about what he's doing but he always seems open especially to interpretation and he tries to leave things open to interpretation he doesn't have to he doesn't give you every piece he is more than content to to leave gaps and let the viewer uh determine what what mm-hmm. is there yeah I, I think that first and foremost Guillermo del Toro is a world builder and I feel like his strengths lie in that world building world building ability, but I also feel like some of his weaknesses lie in that world building ability <laughs> because he's there to create a environment that you just want to exist within. I mean, you want to go see the Pacific Rim uh, you know, FX series. You want to see the Pan's Labyrinth HBO series. You want to see the Hellboy you know, help we get the Marvel treatment uh, and and team up with with other superheroes in that same kind of mystical, interesting world. Like he does such a great job at building those worlds, um, and I think sometimes it falls flat because he's so focused on the world building that he doesn't quite get the performances that he could or maybe should through the actors. And I don't know whether that's a directing thing or whether that's a casting thing or whether that's a budget thing. Uh, I don't know where that comes from, but I feel like that that strength and weakness both lie within his ability to build the world and make it so engrossing that you're able to kind of overlook some of the poor acting performances in his movies because the worlds are so cool. So that's where he gives him away a little himself away a little mm-hmm. bit as such a giant nerd. Yeah, because as a a general subculture nerds have a tendency to delve so deep into one thing and by the way we're we're speaking as nerds here yeah (laughs) in a lot of our own ways uh you know he gets he gets so into the details that when he starts to i think kind of clench down on them that's when he loses i think the audience and Mm -hmm. it's and it's not too often but i think he can get just uh, folk, this, the center of his focus. And I think that's a problem with nerd culture in general is that yeah. there is no room for those who would disagree with you. Hmm. And I think that Guillermo del Toro in some ways has that flaw, but I think he's generally well managed about it. I think he's especially over time. And maybe that's why things like devil's backbone and pants labyrinth, I think are much more, uh, I don't want to say our, artistic but they are they're personal projects compared to pacific rim which is also another movie that he loves but pan's labyrinth and devil's backbone he's leaving gaps he's not trying to fill in and make excuses for how the 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 mystical works in those instances but for pacific rim something that seems to me to be a very kind of internal fanboy moment for him he gets mired down in 
making the trying to explain the drift, but then it kind of slips from him because he has so thoroughly tried to define it that it goes from movie to movie magic to well, this doesn't scientifically make sense. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about it is that he's he said this himself. His, his English language movies, for the most part, until Crimson Peak, were mostly uh, commercial movies, and he describes them himself as juvenile movies. So he's just really creating. It's like a comic book. It's Saturday morning world for adults, basically. That's what he's <laughs> doing with Hellboy and with Pacific Rib and even with Blade Two and with Chrono. I mean, with Mimic, uh, he's creating. He's trying to create that kind of Saturday morning cartoon feel. I think in a lot of ways, and that's why Crimson Peak was such a turning point for him. Was because that was more of that personal story that he's trying to tell through that he that he told through uh, Devil's Backbone and through Pan's Labyrinth. So. Uh, I think that, you know, while you, while you say that that he you know leaves more open in those ones, I think because they're personal stories, he's really focused on the internal things that he's going th- that he's going through. Like you could see a lot of Guillermo del Toro on the page in those stories. Personally, we talked about how the lead character in Crimson Peak is probably the most personal character, kind of outlining who he is, the way that she talks about stories, and the way that she comes up with characters, and the way that she sees ghosts and all of these things. Whereas Pacific Rim, like that's that's the popcorn. I mean, that's that is Saturday morning. That's sitting cross-legged in front of the TV on the on the living room floor. So, um, so yeah, I, I I agree with you in there. I think that um, that he's focused more on those on those films and more of that juvenile fun thing. But I don't necessarily think that it's because he gets wrapped up in those worlds. It's because they're supposed to be fun. That's like the base of it. You're supposed to have fun in those films first and story second. Whereas in uh, Devil's Backbone, Pants Labyrinth, and Crips and Peak, it's supposed to be story first and fun second. Yeah. Well, I think we've proven that maybe we're getting a little bit older based on the fact that we've picked some of those apart. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember, was it Blade Two? Yeah. For the interview where if you didn't like that movie, you're too old. Yeah, he's, he said if it's too loud, if it's too loud, you're too old. That's what he said <laughs> when he made it. So, yeah, I mean, that is, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> When I was a kid, what was the one with the uh, where it was like all CG I don't reboot? Know. Yeah, reboot. Yeah, that reboot. A, I have fond memories of that. Can't wait for the reboot. Reboot. <laughs> Live action reboot. Reboot. Um. <laughs> well, we've talked about the films a little bit here, Levi. Why don't we go through our lists and we're gonna rank the nine Guillermo del Toro movies. From the one we like the best to the one we like the least. And these are, once again, completely subjective, uh, but based on a couple of dudes who watched all of them and then podcasted for each of them for an hour. So, uh, Levi, why don't you go first? Oh, man. And do you want to go worst to best or best to worst? Let's go from worst to best. I think okay. It's more fun, the reveal of what's at the top, especially for Guillermo del Toro, because I assume we have the same two to start I don't uh, think we do. The worst is Mimic. Okay. The uh, after that Blade Two. Uh huh. Then Hellboy Two. Mm. Kronos. And then this is where I really start to sweat. Just even looking at my list as is. <laughs> so, coming in at number five, Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. Then Pacific Rim. Okay, at four. Hellboy. For number three, uh-huh. number two, Devil's Backbone, and number one, Pan's Labyrinth. Okay. 
I think that we have one that is the same. Wow. All right. Let's hear it. That whole thing. I'm dying to know where you come down on these. Okay. So, um, but, and I rank these, I, I take a couple things into consideration. My first one is which one, if they were all st- sitting on the shelf, which one would I grab first? That's mm-hmm. uh, first. That's kind of my first criteria. And my second criteria is from a cinematic standpoint, which one do I think speaks the clearest and has the greatest cinematic experience, whether that's the, you know, the most fun or not, because really the one that you grab first, is probably the most fun one. Um, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to go here from the bottom. So number nine for me is blade two. Uh, number eight is Kronos. Number seven is mimic. Uh, number six, Hellboy two, number five, Pacific rim, number four, pan's labyrinth. Number three, Hellboy, which we both had at number three. Number two, De- or no, no, number two is Devil's Backbone, which we both had at number two, I think. Yeah. And then, uh, and then number one's Crimson Peak for me. Yeah, I figured Crimson Peak was going to come in pretty high for you. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. Something about Pan's Labyrinth, and maybe it was just the nostalgia of you know being in college and everything at that mm-hmm. time in life, and just. Yep like going into that movie so unexpected um, that, you know, I really felt like I was hit sideways. You know, we kind of clumped them, our top half and our bottom half are yeah. pretty close. Although, help, uh, sorry, not help, Chronos uh, below Mimic? Yeah, I think so. On Just because... What grounds? <laughs> uh, okay, Chronos is a very interesting movie to me, but it's not a movie that I like want to watch over and over again. Um. I think that the production value shows its age. Uh, I think that it's probably got the worst acting of any of the movies. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just a little heavy-handed. You know, it's these things where they're a little rough around the edges. And also with Mimic, I'm specifically talking about the Mimic director's cut because I never saw the original cut of this movie. That's true. We haven't seen the... And Even there's the director's lo- cut was still... Yeah, but it's it's. I'd watch 90s... Kronos before I watch Mimic again. I don't know. I don't think... Uh, Kronos would be one if I was talking vampires with somebody mm-hmm. who was generally well-rounded in popular media. Yeah. I would recommend Kronos. I'd say, here's a weird take on vampires. Yeah. Watch Kronos. I actually, if you're talking about the shelf test, I would probably watch Kronos over Mimic. I'm just giving Mimic a few points here. Uh, because of the kids getting mutilated by the bugs, <laughs> the ties to Alien, because basically the whole second half of the movie is Alien. Um, I don't know the the dude in the movie that who plays like the the love interest of the lead. That guy's awful. So maybe he'll <laughs> b- bump it down for me. This, I, there might just be some nostalgia for me though of like late '90s sci-fi action films. Yeah, I could. I can so that, understand that logic. That might have bumped it up, but once again, we're talking about number seven and number eight on a list of nine. <laughs> so this is kind of the definition of splitting hairs. But I think you're you're right. Basically, kind of the cream of the crop, and I think we both had these in the top five: is Crimson Peak, Devil's Backbone, Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Pacific Rim. In any order, that's the cream of the crop. And then there's Hellboy Two, Mimic, Crotos, and Blade Two as kind of the bottom of the crop. Yeah. And I think really where you come down on, I'm. It's when you get to that top, it really becomes a where does Hellboy and Pacific Rim mm-hmm. sit on your personal I think those are shelf grabbers for sure. Yes. Like those any 
any day of the week I could grab those off. Pan's mm-hmm. Labyrinth, it's like, I need a downer of a day <laughs> before I reach for that. And, you know, I, I went back and forth with where... Because Pan's Labyrinth, Devil Backbone, and Crimson Peak are those personal stories. And right. it's difficult not to to kind of want to put those three together on the list. And that's, I think, where I... Pan's mm. Labyrinth made the top because of just, for whatever reason, that's the movie that just always sits in the back of my mind as one of my favorite films on a yeah. lot of levels. Well, um, I think when you talk about Guillermo del Toro, the first thing that comes to mind is specific or is, is Pan's Labyrinth. I mean, yeah. for me at least, that's the movie that I associate most with him. So, Well, and it it's highlights, affecting. you know, the fact that he's a Spanish-speaking film director. Right. Um, I mean, and that was the whole reason that we put him up against Caron and... Inaritu. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Inaritu was, mm-hmm. you know, that they're just, there's not that many yeah and there right. there are some real highlights out there there are some fantastic spanish speaking film directors and yeah i, mean, and I, I think really that those three are really the household names i'm sure there's a lot of them out there but it's yes. so hard for a director to be come a household name like really i would say maybe 10 maybe 15 i mean, we're talking about obviously tarantino tim burton uh wes anderson uh, I'm talking about like people that like I could talk to talk to my mom and she knows who they are. Such a hard list of people to get through. So, um, so to be a a known by name director alone is a big feat. And I think Inuritu, Caron, and and Del Toro are all three probably I would say the three most prolific Mexican directors working today. Well, the exciting thing is that the. The playing these are all guys that have gone through kind of the traditional system, but we're mm-hmm. coming into an era of kids that are making movies on YouTube and right. <laughs> it's only gonna get it's the you know, you're right, they're the household names. So what determines the the kingmaker who's the kingmaker for the next generation of filmmakers and what what biases kind of raise and lower mm-hmm. the those of talent from, you know, who begin on internet media. I <laughs> Well, I think it all comes off of style and it comes off of you gotta have a tentpole movie. Guillermo del Toro's tentpole movie, I think, is Pan's Labyrinth. Uh Inuritu's tentpole movie, I would say, is probably Birdman. Um and it, you know, he's kind of come on recently with Birdman and, and The Revenant. I mean, those are two back to back movies that are just really prolific, even though he's had a very long career. Um but those are really those were the ones that kind of projected him. I mean, he won back to back best director Oscars for those two movies. That's pretty amazing. Um, and then Quaron, I think for me, it's it's um, uh, Children of Men. Like that movie is just astounding. So well, I think you have to have that ten pull movie, and then you have to have that voice that resonates throughout. Well, I think Quaron has an advantage in. And maybe Guillermo del Toro has this to a degree too. And Caron mm-hmm. did one of the Harry Potter movies. Yep. And he did Prisoner of Azkaban. He did Pri- Prisoner of Azkaban was one of the darker of the Harry Potter movies. I mean, that's the fun thing about watching all the Harry Potter movies is seeing the touch of the director in each of them. They really were able to kind of have their own sensation, uh, their own uh, sensibilities, right? In a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Even down to the uh, the, the wands. The wands change drastically from movie to movie. Some of them they're very simple. Some of them they're very intricate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, for our other podcast. Uh, 
Set dressing. <laughs> Set dressing, but brought to you by Hidden Valley Ranch. Um, <laughs> so what? The anyway. I would have loved to see Guillermo del Toro direct a Harry Potter movie. Oh, I think I'm sure his name was brought up at some point. <laughs> that would have been real interesting. Um, but yeah, I I want to go back to del Toro here. Uh. In fact, Davey Mack on the forums put together an awesome list. So he, of course, did what we all do, which is rank the films. This was his ranking from worst to best. Blade 2, Mimic, Hellboy 2, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, Hellboy, Kronos at number three, The Devil's Backbone, and Pan's Labyrinth. So he, uh, the main difference there is he had Kronos in the top three, whereas I think we both, both had it in the bottom four. So that's kind of an interesting move there. Um, but then he's got a great list here. So favorite del Toroisms from Davy Mac. Number one, humane monsters and monstrous humans. Very strong theme throughout all the movies. Number two, moments of quiet brave where we've talked about those. Number three, clockwork, of course. Number four, the various use of insects and jars of creatures slash organs spread across all films. And number five, torrential rain. What other del Toroisms, Levi, would you like to mention? If you see this in the movie, it could be a del Toro movie. Um, I mean, he obviously left off dead children. Yep, creepy, dead. Chi- creepy or dead children and yep. or. Dead. Sometimes he really likes to do both. I feel like that's, I mean, really put that at number one for favorite. <laughs> I know. waiting for it to happen. It's like, oh, there's a child. At some point, they're probably dead. Let's see. We had Mimic, Dead Kid. Uh, Devil's Backbone, obviously, Dead Kid. Pan's Labyrinth, Dead Kid. Hellboy, Dead Kid. Um, there, there, I'm sure there are tons of collateral Dead Kids in Wait, Pacific Rim. The dead Kid and Hellboy? Uh, there was at the the scene where Liz is a child, the flashback oh, scene, that's she blows right. up yep, like four kids. snuck it in there. Yeah. Good God. Um, don't think there's any Dead Kids in Hellboy 2. And then, of course, Dead Baby in uh, Crimson Peak. Yeah, that one. So, that was straight up ghost, creepy, dead baby. Mm-hmm. Um, other del Torosms he left off there that are that maybe were, they were past his top five. Uh, the use uh-huh. of color, oh yeah, is hands down one of the most fascinating things to me as an architect. Mm-hmm. That it's lighting is incredibly difficult. Trying to imagine the 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 sensations that lighting will give off and then executing those uh, flawlessly because it's really easy to screw it up. I mean, he's bringing in color and light and he's consistent and he's just gotten stronger with it over time to the point where Crimson Peak was just (laughs) gorgeous. Yeah. Strong, colorful themes, but really that blue, dark blue, and orange. And another thing, another big part of Del Toro is that most of his movies take place at night. Like for the for the majority of the movie, it's going to be nighttime, and that's all the way back to Kronos. And I think that's all the way. Th- I mean, I one of the things that really struck me was the beginning of Pan's Labyrinth when they're driving through the forest, and I'm like, holy shit, it's bright. We're outdoors. Like, is this a Del Toro movie? We should be in the sewer. Yeah. It should be nighttime in the sewer. So well, that nighttime I think that's is really the right weird. time. That time is the right time. It, but yeah, that, that dark blue, um, those those kind of cyan colors, and then juxtaposed with the bright orange artificial light, that's like a really common theme. Any other Del Toroisms? Uh, just the gothic 
Gothic tech was mm-hmm. what he called it in um, Pacific Rim in one of the interviews. Yeah. The the style of his architecture and the set design, yes, always dirty, often pointy to a degree. Usually, uh, you know, they all um, a lot of the spaces, and some of it is through lighting as well, mm-hmm. had that religious sensation. In Mimic, with the light coming down into the sewer, Blade 2 had moments like that. Blade 2 had an actual cathedral space. Yeah. Uh, the the Shatter Dome in Pacific Rim, mm-hmm. the main entry of, of the Crimson Peak Mansion, they all have this tall quality that is unnatural. We don't see a lot of works that are that tall anymore, and certainly mm. uh, not... Most of most tall structures now are skyscrapers, and so you don't build up and then have light coming in through an oculus that that hole at the top that lets light in. Um, and a lot of these sets, I feel, had those moments where light was coming through a very specific moment, point high above the the actors, whatever the char- whoever the character was in the scene, and it you, it gives such a strong contrast, and it's really a cathedral-esque sensation and that's uh, the other one is all of the religious symbolism mm-hmm. that's all yeah, over catholic symbolism. movies although the catholic symbolism kind of fizzled out like it was really strong i would say all the way through pan's labyrinth and then afterward once he hit hellboy 2 it kind of fizzled out um so i thought that was kind of i thought that was noteworthy because it was super strong even in mimic i mean mimic was super strong like catholic symbolism so i thought that was interesting too late to you left out here blade spinning Oh, spinning yeah. of blades. <laughs> if somebody's like spinning blades around because just trying to look cool, basically, that's a Del Toroism <laughs> at this point. And then my favorite one, glow sticks. Glow sticks. Yeah, those orange. Crack them. Do some spelunking. Mm-hmm. Oh, the. Oh, I lost it. I had it just a second ago. Looking down. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm looking at the word psychology. But there's a very choice. Choice was a huge Del Toro. Every character has those moments of choice, right. and they're very highlighted. They're very integral to the story, and mm-hmm. they're, I think, what Del Toro is the most obsessive about is that his characters made a decision, and that decision reflects whether they're truly good or not. And yeah. that falls a little bit under the humane monsters and monstrous humans. Is they were usually delineated by their decision making. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, up next here he's got most compelling characters. So for Davy Mack here, number one, Thomas Sharp from Cl- Crimson Peak. Number two, Doctor Ferrario from Pan's Labyrinth. Number three, Conchita from The Devil's Backbone. Number four, Hellboy, and number five, Jesus Greece from Kronos. Who is your most compelling? del toro character throughout his filmography i think conchita really Mm -hmm. was i mean her defiant stand was one of the strongest moments it was a great moment but she was a very i mean she wasn't very well developed she was only in like four scenes in the movie but she didn't have to be Uh that she knows she's dead and she will not move Mm -hmm. and that was i think it's one of the better more intimate moments that he's written i think yeah. that uh i can't think of her name now the little girl in pan's labyrinth yeah Ophelia. i think Ophelia is one of the most interesting 
characters to me just because she I feel like she's so much Guillermo del Toro as a child <laughs> in a lot of ways um, I thought she was a very compelling character and then I also uh, thought Edith from Crimson Peak was a very compelling character probably both because they're so tied so closely I think to Guillermo del Toro as a person um, which I thought was you know pretty strong and I feel like the more you learn about Guillermo del Toro the more interesting that becomes was um, Jaime the kid that that yeah. witnessed the death in Devil's Backbone. No, Jaime was the main character. Was it? oh no, Jaime was the guy. Yeah, he was the villain. He was kind of the the. He was the villain for the, the first half. Yeah, Jaime was another really, really compelling character. I thought. Yeah, totally. Um, I like that character a lot because he, like you said, you kind of start off. You think he's the villain, and then he turns out to be like the, the his biggest adversary. Or, I mean, yeah. his biggest um, ally, not adversary. Um. Yeah, I thought that was good. Um, what else we got here? We got fi- favorite creatures for Davy Mack here. The Elemental from Hellboy 2 is number one. Number two, the Ghost from Devil's Backbone. Number three, the Pale Man. Number four, all of the Kaiju. And number five, the Tooth Fairies from Hellboy 2. Uh, what's your, who's your favorite creature? Can you count Abe as a creature? Absolutely. I think Abe is uh, one of my favorite just because of his, he's the smart side to Hellboy's strength, mm-hmm. and it's it's not overplayed. He's not overpowerful. Uh, we get some emotion out of him in the second Hellboy that I think really went a long way for me, especially because of his not betrayal, but the act of trying to save uh, Nadal, whatever the the elf. Princess, um, can't smile without <laughs> favorite song moment for sure. Mm-hmm. Where's that on this list of <laughs> top best singalongs? I think for me, uh, my favorite creature is probably the fawn from Pan's Labyrinth. I just was kind of blown away by that whole costume, the way he moved, just <laughs> yeah, and the the way he had like those tall, the way he was so tall and like his legs bent all weird and. Doug Jones in there being all creepy. I thought that was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, favorite scene slash moments for David E. Mack here. Number one, Conchita's fateful showdown with Jacinto and Devil's Backbone. Number two, the doctor wa- walking away from El Capitan in Pan's Labyrinth. Those are, those are those two moments of quiet bravery that we talked about. Number three, the opening sequence inside the hospital children's ward in Mimic, which was with all the dead kids or dying kids in Mimic the beginning uh number four the tour of the sharps house in crimson peak and number five being inside the jaeger's head the first time it's dropped onto its body in pacific rim what was your favorite scene or moment uh the end of uh, pan's labyrinth is uh-huh. one of the strongest with the with ophelia dead essentially but yeah. the telling the story of her death and rebirth um is always really moving to me coupled with the death of the captain, especially with the, the words, he will never know your name. It's just (laughs) such a crushing blow. Yeah. Um, And then when the Jaeger punches his fist together for no reason (laughs) whatsoever, and all the water goes off of the metal body. That's also every time gets me every time. Yeah, I think um, 
I think there's a couple moments here, but one that I really love, uh, I, I think two of them were from Pacific Rim. Both of them are from Pacific Rim. Um, the first time I watched it, the first time that the Jaeger, or not the Jaeger, the Kaiju sprouts its wings and starts flying, that was a big moment for me. That was like an, I, I think when I was in the theater the first time I saw that, I like shouted because I was so <laughs> excited by it. Uh, so that's really one. But then the other one is um, at the end of Pacific Rim, there's there's another moment of quiet bravery, which I thought was really great. It's where they are loading up to go down to the rift. or not? Is it the rift? Yes. It's not the rift. It's the rift. No, the rift is where they... where they. It's a trans-dimensional rift. No, but the rift is when they put their brains together. That's called the rift, No, that's right? the drift. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. They're going down <laughs> to the hole at the, at the bottom of the ocean. And there's a moment there where the Australian son talks to his dad. And because his dad knows he's basically going on a suicide mission. And there's this moment here where his dad is saying goodbye to his son and telling him that he's proud of him, knowing that it's probably the last time they'll ever see each other. That is a very powerful scene to me. In a movie that's pretty fun and pretty bombastic and pretty juvenile by Guillermo del Toro's own admission, that scene is like pretty strong in my opinion because it's like holy shit the gravity of the situation knowing that they're going on this suicide mission is very very compelling um horrifying moments the most horrifying moments for davy mack here number one the father's encounter with the sink in crimson peak number two the <laughs> bottle beating in pan's labyrinth number three the pale man sequence in pan's labyrinth number four the first good look at the Reavers' mouths in Blade Two, and number five, brutal kid deaths in Mimic. <laughs> what was your most horrifying moment, Levi? Uh, honestly, the face in the door in Crimson Peak. There's a moment yeah. where she pulls it open, and you know you're expecting something, but usually a jump scare <laughs> interacts with the with the actor, and there wasn't right. that. She just opens it and looks in the looks in the camera like she's waiting, like getting a kick out of watching you go, oh, oh, there's a face in there. Oh. Yeah. The face in the door is real creepy. And then also at the very beginning of the movie when her mom wraps her hand around her in bed. Oh, yeah. Those long fingers. <laughs> That's very creepy as well. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, favorite thematic use of props. Uh, number one, the... The, the bomb in Devil's Backbone, number two. The eye in the statue at Pan's Labyrinth, number three. The pen, Crimson Peak, number four. The Kronos device in Kronos. Any any props that stood out to you, Levi? Uh, the door in Hellboy. Uh huh. The big uh, yeah, just that big marble, just that big monolith. piece of limestone or something. Yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, that was to me carried a lot of weight for such a simple object. That was probably just really well painted wood. <laughs> yeah i think hellboy has a lot of them they had a lot of really good knickknacks and stuff like i love the uh the little um it was like the finger of a saint or something yeah that, the, the reliquary yeah that uh that abe <laughs> sapien wears down when he's when he's going down into the samael nest at the bottom of the sewer that was really fun i love the crown in hellboy too um the, fi- the, the fiery the- one that keeps showing up on his head or the the elf belt no the elven crown that the like three-part elven crown um the shiny little blade i mean that puts a nice timer on the thing and it takes us to the archangel that was pretty cool oh man the archangel though that might actually be my favorite yeah creature i was also just thinking we also left out ivan who was easily one of the top five funniest characters in the whole thing 
Ivan. Just a dead, frozen Russian. Yes, with Ivan a bad was attitude. Amazing. Ivan was amazing. <laughs> I was better well, off was dead. <laughs> <laughs> you should have left me dead. So funny. Yeah. Um, but overall, man, I'm really happy that I got to walk through these movies. Uh, and I got to see a lot of movies that I'd never seen before, which was which was great because the prior two directors I'd seen all the films, so this was a great opportunity to see some new stuff. Yeah, there was that was cool. Three and nine I had never seen before, and so that was a yeah. lot of fun. Um, I think a lot of them I hadn't seen Pan's Labyrinth, I hadn't seen Blade Two, Mimic, Chronos, Devil's Backbone. Oh no, four. Yeah, because I, I mean, hadn't seen Chronos. I might have seen De- Blade 2, but I don't remember whether I did or I didn't. <laughs> anyway. Worst uh, moment. I want to see the sunrise, even though I'm oh a vampire. God. I'm still pissed about that. That's Please still melt my skin off. I want to see the bottom of the ocean drown me to death. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, yeah, man. Great journey through Guillermo del Toro. And I know the next question that our listeners will be asking us is, who is our next director? And just like we did with this one, we're going to pose you three choices and we can actually make that announcement right now. So you could go to the forums, forums.baldmove.com and you can vote on our next director. It will be one of these three directors. Uh, drum roll, pre- please, Levi. <laughs> Number one will be David Fincher. David Fincher, of course, wrote uh, or directed uh, Fight Club. He directed... Um, social network. Uh, he's he's a pretty prolific director, and we really like uh, what he does. So that's that's a very interesting choice. Not to mention his first directorial debut was Alien Three. Levi. Oh, that would be a great one to go back and watch. <laughs> that's that's a. I don't reach when you talk about the shelf test. Alien Three uh-huh. is easily the one I reach for the least. Uh-huh. But it's also the one that I've watched the director's commentary for. And uh-huh. it was so good. There's so much going on in that film. And I'd love to sit down with a more critical eye and go over it. Yeah, just kind of go through it a little bit. Also did, of course, he did Seven. I don't know um, if I can watch Gone Girl again. Good Lord. Why not? <laughs> that movie's just a... There's a lot going on in that movie. Yeah. Have you you've there seen it, right? I have seen it. I saw it in the theater. Uh, it's a very interesting movie and I had very mixed reactions about it. So I'd kind of like to revisit it. He did Zodiac, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, The Game. He's done a lot of great, uh, great stuff. He's got a great clear voice and, uh, um, he's, he's our first, first choice on director. He's your first choice you could choose from. Uh, number two is going to be Christopher Nolan. Of course, Christopher Nolan, uh, very famous for the Batman trilogy, uh, the Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, and Batman Begins. Uh, also, of course, did Interstellar, uh, Memento, uh, Inception, The Prestige. Um, so, one of the, I would say, one of the most, um, one of the most liked directors, I, I think, right now. Uh, I think I've is only, Christopher Nolan. The only thing I haven't seen on here is Following. I've seen all of his other movies. Have you seen? Oh, have you seen Insomnia? Insomnia, yes. Insomnia with so. Robin Williams yes. and Al Pacino. It's I been believe? a long time. Is that him? Yeah. Wait. Oh, I'm looking at writer. That's part of my problem. But yes, yes. I've seen Insomnia too. Yeah. Um. So, very very prolific director of today's age. And then the last one 
is Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, I would say he's probably the best director alive right now. Uh, the best single director, because I do love the Coen brothers, but they are, in fact, two people. Um, <laughs> but he did Boogie Nights, uh, Magnolia, of course, Punked Trunk Love, which is one of my favorite movies, top five movies of all time. There Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, uh, really really prolific director and like i said one of the most respected directors today so those are your three choices uh will be david fincher christopher nolan and paul thomas anderson go to the forums forums.ballmove.com and make your voice heard i'm going to be going on a trip to japan so we're going to be picking it up uh we're going to take about a month off and we will be back in about a month with our next director for direct levi anything you want to say before we sign off for 30 days or so i'm just excited for uh, Guillermo del Toro's next movie, the The Shape of Water. Oh yeah, Michael we didn't Shannon get to as talk the about that. Michael Shannon as the villain. We talked yeah. about villains make a movie. That guy is such a good actor. I cannot wait to see how he does in the hands of a Cold War del Toro uh, creature from the Black Lagoon kind of movie. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested to see how the whole Cold War thing shakes out because there's so many different ways you could take it. You know, so I'm I'm really interested to see how specifically how the Cold War plays into the plot. That's what I'm really interested in. So, and uh, you could bet when it comes out, we'll review it just as we will when Quentin Tito's next movie comes <laughs> out and when Edgar Wright's next movie comes out. We will of course do the next Del Toro movie in context. I did not know that we did that. That's a good idea. I, I think it's probably a good idea. Fire this Gotta, baby back up. Yeah, gotta keep the uh, gotta keep the old lists current, my friend. All right, so I think that's it for this epilogue, and that's it for Del Toro. It's a fun ride, and uh, and it's time to move on to the next director. And until then, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut. <laughs>